Well, if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to read the first nine verses. Uh, As you're turning there, I will just uh, maybe say a couple quick remarks about my cousin Lee. Um, uh, All this is recorded, so that's kind of the dangerous part. Uh, But, you know, actually, my cousin Lee, uh, growing up with him, and then we, we both became Christians really around the same time. Uh, I remember the day for me, it was July 25th, 1987 at Willingdon Church. I remember it so crystal crystal clear. And uh, I think Lee was roughly about five weeks after that. And God radically reoriented both of our lives, put us on a trajectory that was completely opposite of where we're going and reached into a family that knew absolutely nothing about Jesus, the Bible, anything, and just plucked us out of that by his grace and then set us on this path. We went to Bible college together for four years. Lee's always been a best friend of mine. One of the things that really stands out to me about Lee all through the years is I I can't, you know, he may be, maybe he wouldn't describe himself this way, but I find like a lot of times pastors think of themselves as like what biblical character you describe yourself as, right? I find myself a little bit more like Peter. And a lot of pastors would say that because I say a lot of things sometimes that get me in trouble and I'm a little bit sort of impetuous or whatever and I can do things that like, oh, why did I do that? I should have done that. Lee is very, the word always for Lee for years has been, he's wise. He's wise. It's an incredibly great characteristic. He's wise, he's methodical, he's careful in a very good way. Um, And that's just one of the many things about my cousin that I so cherish and value. And... You know, with um, with Lee, um, I shared in the first service, one of the things when we had when we were in Bible college that was always interesting because we were roommates too, uh, is he had a little bit of a snoring habit. Um, and uh, I think the, the whatever it was in Saskatchewan air kind of didn't do too good for him either. And so there was always tissues everywhere, right? And so, but I remember, you know, I would have a hockey stick beside my bed, uh, you know, because if you're in a little dorm room, I mean, one bed's here, one bed's over here, right? Uh, with a hockey stick you can reach because I didn't want to get out of bed but he would be snoring away and I'm trying to get to sleep I can't fall asleep or he wakes me up because of his snoring and so I just pick up my hockey stick I never played hockey but I just had a hockey stick and I reach over and I would just hit him with it just to try to jolt him out of his snoring and then when I had a moment when his snoring stopped I would try to fall asleep anyway that's one of my most brutal stories I'll tell you about Lee um, there's, there's others, I'm sure, but that's, that's friendly enough of one to share with you. So now that you're in your uh, Bible to Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, um, let's read that passage together. Paul says here, starting in verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith are you so foolish having begun by the spirit are you now being perfected by the flesh did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man 
of faith. How do we get to heaven? How do we get to heaven? You know, when asking that question, you will likely get a variety of responses. If, if you're the one who's asking some of the question, maybe you're here this morning even, and you're asking that question for yourself. You're asking, how do I get to heaven? Well, if you're asking somebody the question, honestly, the typical response that you would find is that people answer it with works. They would say some form of works or deeds need to be done. We get to heaven, in other words, by doing good works or earning actually the right to be in heaven. You don't just get to go to heaven, but you actually have to do something to get there. You just need to make sure that in your life, on the scale of eternity, that you have enough good deeds to outweigh the bad deeds so that You can tip the scale in your favor so that when the day comes, you make it into glory. Well, there's a lot of challenges with thinking that way. Just two of them that I want to give to you this morning. First of all, is that one of the significant challenges for a person who's really reflective and thinks about sort of these matters, instead of just kind of going through life and kind of just lives life and ignores the sort of spiritual eternal realities, if you're actually a thinking, reflecting person on this, you might want to ask yourself, wait a second, how do I know if I've ever done enough? Like, like when is good enough good enough? Like, and, and how do I know? And, and, and who, what, what are the scales? And what are the things that are good? And what are things that are not? And so you, you weigh in reflectively on it, and you come away usually from that saying, I'm a little bit in despair because it's very in a very subjective way. I'm asking myself, have I done enough or have I not? Like, who's going to tell me this? Because I'd kind of like to know. I mean, it's kind of a little bit of a game to play, isn't it? I, I need to know this. Well, that's kind of a hopeless kind of situation to be in, isn't it? And, and thankfully, actually, we're not, we're not saved by works. That's not how we do it. We don't earn favor with God and tip the scales in eternity. The second problem, of course, is just the Bible's crystal clear on this, right? So coming at it from, as a Christian, coming at it from the Word of God, which we believe is authoritative, inspired, the Word of God, God's message to us, God tells us that you actually can't do anything that will get you into heaven. You and I, we can't save ourselves we, we, we don't work for it. We don't earn it. There's no works that you and I could do to ever merit us getting into heaven. The word of God tells us that the works that we do cannot save us because no amount of works can deal with the most significant problem in the human condition and that is the problem that we know as sin. It's sin actually which keeps us from God. It's sin which keeps us from a relationship with Him. And so because sin is our greatest problem, our greatest need then is forgiveness, but forgiveness is not earned. Aren't you glad that forgiveness isn't earned? That when you even do something to a friend, a loved one, a family member, a spouse, a child, whatever it may be, that it's not something you should have to earn. When somebody actually gives that to you and say, I, I forgive you. I forgive you. But sometimes we want to try to make people earn it, don't we? But that's not God's way. Forgiveness is not something that you earn. It is a gift that is given to us. So that's one way of thinking about an answer to the question, how we get to heaven. The second way is this. It's a little bit more sophisticated or or almost maybe sounds a little bit more like, yeah, this would actually be true. This could be correct. It's the idea that you have to have faith. You have to have faith, but you also have to have 
So think of it this way. The word faith and then the word plus, or you could use the word and. So faith plus or and, and then works or deeds or whatever you want to put over here. That will result in me being saved. That will result in me being a Christian and being able to go to heaven. So in other words, we get to heaven by faith and works. Or maybe if you want to be specifically faith in Jesus Christ and or plus whatever stuff works will make me a Christian. You know, it sounds on sort of the surface level like it could be right. You know, I mean, I, I lived for 18 years in a state that that view is thought to be right, right? So, so the message that I brought when I was in that state was actually not that message. It was saying, yes, there's faith in Jesus, but it's not plus and it's not and anything else. It's faith in Jesus. So it's this combination of faith in Jesus and works that we're dealing with here in the book of Galatians. Galatians isn't a book about simply just purely works to get you to heaven. Galatians is a book about a group of people, the Judaizers, that you've heard about probably over the last several weeks, who are saying you have to have faith in Jesus and you have to have works, or what they call the works of the law. Both of those things, working in concert, synthesized together, will actually bring you salvation. The Judaizers, more specifically, however, were not just broadly saying the works of the law. They had one particular thing in mind. They were saying that in order for you to make it to heaven or to be declared righteous, have a right standing with God, to be just, to be justified, one had to not only believe in Jesus, but they also had to be circumcised, to be circumcised. Because they said that's what a true son of Abraham is. A true son of Abraham is one who is circumcised. And so in reading through the book of Galatians, it becomes clear for the Apostle Paul right at the, right at the first few verses that Paul is quite upset, actually, with the Galatian Christians. It's really a collection of a group of churches, probably in that area in Galatia. He's upset with them because these false teachers known as the Judaizers have come into the church and they have now taught the church, somehow influencing them, that they, yes, need faith in Jesus, but that's not sufficient enough. They also need the works of the law, in particular, to be circumcised. And Paul's... The, the fact that Paul is upset with this, it comes out right away in chapter 1, verse 6. Weeks ago, you've seen this passage in verse 6 where Paul said these words, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. You know, Paul in his letter doesn't start this letter in such a way that he usually starts it. There's 13 books that Paul's written of the 27 in the New Testament. This book in particular stands kind of a little bit unique from all of other Paul's books because Paul does not, at the beginning of this book, start like so many others where he'll have sort of the, the, the typical introduction to a letter with all the niceties. 
right? Grace and mercy and peace to you. And I thank God for you. And I'm praying for you. And here's my prayer. And he'll write down the prayer. And throughout the letter, especially at the end of the letter, in his final kind of remarks, he says, you know, greet this person and that person. And uh, this person is wonderful. I love them. They've been so good to the ministry. And there's none of that here. Paul is upset. He's upset because something so core is is at risk. The gospel. The gospel is at stake. And Paul's frustration comes out in our text in the very first verse. I want you to notice in verse 1 how it comes out. He says in this passage, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Now, we might read those words and think, my goodness, Paul's a little bit harsh, isn't he? I mean, that's a little bit harsh to to write a letter to a group of Christians and tell them that they're foolish and that they've, they've been bewitched. Well, it might seem harsh to us, but it's not actually harsh. Paul is so truthful about the gospel, he's reminding them that they have actually gone against the gospel by accepting these false teachers into the midst. And he uses this word bewitched, which is really an interesting word. It's a word that actually carries with it this idea of holding someone's complete attention through magic. It's like Paul is saying to the Galatian Christians, you're foolish and you've been put under a spell. Like the false teachers have come in and you are spellbound by these false teachers and I don't understand it. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for this. So here they are as a group of Christians held spellbound. And Paul is, is incredulous because the gospel he preached was not faith and something else it was faith in Jesus alone and Paul writes then this book to remind those believers that they are not saved by works alone and he's also telling them they're not saved by faith and works what Paul does is he drives home the point repeatedly through all five chapters that we are saved by faith in Christ alone and that faith Results in fruitful living. We're saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, and that faith results in genuine living, genuine fruitful living. But what Paul wants to do in chapter 3 here is he wants to, to break the spell. He recognizes that they're bewitched. He recognizes that they're spellbound, that they're held captive by, in, in some ways by almost a magical spell that's been placed upon these believers. It's not real magic, but you know he's getting the point that you guys have come under the influence here. And he, he gives them three things, three things in this passage in the first nine verses. Three things that he wants them to remember. And he's giving them these three things in hopes that they would sort of snap out of it, you know? Snap out from the spell that they've put under you. So let's take a look at those three things that Paul gives them, three reminders. First of all, according to verse 1, he wants them to remember the sufficiency of the cross of Christ. The sufficiency of the cross of Christ. He begins in verse 1 by saying, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. The Galatian believers 
have been duped by the false teachers into thinking that they needed Jesus and Jesus and the works of the law. But Paul reminded them that his message was all about Christ crucified. Christ crucified. He tells them, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, what does Paul mean by this? It was before your eyes. I mean, they didn't actually see Jesus get crucified. No, that's not what Paul's saying. Galatia is a very long distance away from where Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. But he is saying to them, when I came into your area, when I came to Galatia, I preached the gospel message to you. The message I preached to you was the message of Jesus Christ's crucifixion, his death upon the cross. And when he says that it's sort of publicly portrayed, what he means, the word here actually carries with it this idea that back in the day it was like a placard or it was like a... um, Uh, a bulletin board or announcement board where you would sort of put a poster up and hang it up and you would declare that Jesus Christ is crucified. And Paul went into the areas, if you read the book of Acts, where Paul went through Acts 13, 14, on and there, he goes into Galatia and he preaches the gospel message to all the different towns and villages around and he tells people about the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's like Paul saying here, he was publicly portrayed to you as crucified. I, it, it was put on a billboard for all of you to see. It was put on a billboard. And he's so amazed and astounded that they've been bewitched. And he wants them to remember in hopes that they will snap out of it the spell that when they add works to their salvation, they are in denial and rejection of the sufficiency of the cross of Christ. They're saying that his cross is not enough. And the core of Paul's gospel message is always, in all of Paul's writings, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His message was never Jesus and, it was always Jesus Alone. Jesus is enough. Jesus is sufficient. And even in the text right before chapter 3, verse 1, if your eyes kind of scroll back in your Bible to chapter 2, verse 21, the very verse before it, he said, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. In other words, somebody might reason this way and say, well, you know what, listen, listen. We're not denying that Jesus died on the cross here. We're just saying he died on the cross, but there's still some other stuff you got to do. And Paul's saying, no, if you add anything to the cross of Christ, you're denying the cross. Because you're taking away from the sufficiency of the cross, and the cross of Christ and the death of Christ then has no purpose at all. That's Paul's argument. So Paul is riveting us back and the Galatians back to the centrality of the cross and the sufficiency of the cross right here in this passage. In other words, snap out of it, people. Snap out of this spell that you've been put under. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul, his message, of course, as I mentioned, is the same wherever he goes. And Paul tells those Corinthian believers... He says these words, When I came to you, 
brothers, did not, did not come to you with the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. In other words, I, I didn't come with sort of this uh, great oration and skill and ability, but here it is in verse 2. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You know, it's fascinating. If you, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, Paul makes this comment. He says, um, God did not send me to baptize. He sent me to preach the gospel. You know, for Paul, he, he, it's clear in his mind the categories. He says in chapter 1, verse 17, I, I came to preach the gospel, not to baptize. In other words, the gospel is not to be equated with baptism. They're separate. They're they're different things. The gospel comes first, right? Believing in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, the proclamation of Jesus' death upon the cross. That comes first. And when a person comes to know Jesus Christ, it's baptism that comes later. Paul said there's a difference. There's the gospel and then there's baptism. Let's not confuse and confound the two. Because Paul said, when I came to you, Corinthians, I came and I was all about the sufficiency of the cross of Christ, nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So to break that spell that those false teachers had put upon the believers, Paul reminds them of this in hope that they would snap out of it and that they would discover that it's so needed for them to have a return to the truth that they first heard of the simplicity of the cross of Christ. You want to know how to get to heaven? You want to know how to have your sins forgiven? You want to know what it is to be, as Paul talks about in in this passage, or, or in this book, I should say, in Galatians, to be justified before God, that is, to be made righteous before God so that you can get to heaven, because apart from being made righteous by God, Him giving you your right, giving you righteousness, you'll never get to heaven, I would never get to heaven. You want to know how that's done? Paul says, look at the cross of Christ. Look at the cross of Christ. It's the cross. There's your answer. Your answer is the cross of Christ. Always has been. Always will be. But there's another thing that Paul wants us to see in this passage. The second thing is this. To break the spell that's been cast upon them by the false teachers, Paul wants them to, secondly, remember the experience of salvation. He wants them to go back. Right? He wants them to go back in their minds to the day that they believed, when they came to know Jesus Christ. Notice what he says in verses 2 through 6. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? See, Paul's taking them back, isn't he? He's taking them back. Are you so foolish, he asks, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. In this passage that I just read to you, Paul asks the Galatians five questions. Five questions that are intended to to draw them back in their mind to remember when Paul was there, the message he proclaimed. He's already told them, listen, remember Jesus, the sufficiency of the cross of Christ? I came and I preached Christ crucified. But he also wants them to remember now that 
Listen, when I came to you and I preached that message, you had an experience. You had an experience actually with the Spirit of God. So when you've had this experience with the Spirit of God, why now are you trying to earn and work for your salvation? Look at what Paul says in this passage. And I want, to know, want you to notice just the contrast Paul makes in verses 2 through 6 in terms of the difference between the Spirit, the work of the Spirit that is, and what he describes as the flesh or the works of the law. He puts them at odds with each other here in the passage. And when he asks the questions, he says, first of all, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Well, the answer is, it was by hearing with faith. It wasn't by the works of the law. Are you so foolish, he asks. And here it is again. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Going back in your mind, remember, you heard the gospel, you received the Spirit. You didn't, you didn't do that by working and earning. You just, God poured out His Spirit upon you. You received the Spirit. You began with the Spirit, but why are you trying now to be perfected by some other means? And then he goes on to say, does He who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? When I read that portion of it, does He who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, tells me something about their community. It tells me that they were a church where the Spirit of God was active in their midst. Now, I'm not going to explain what I think that might be because I don't know. The text doesn't sell, but tell us. But it does say that specifically they, they had miracles that were being worked among them by the Holy Spirit. And somehow the Spirit supplied to them help in, in the works of miracles as well. There is a, the point is that there is a real, living, vibrant work of God by His Spirit in the lives of the Galatians. And Paul brings this to their attention. You receive the Spirit. The Spirit of God started in your life. The Spirit of God, uh, God supplies the Spirit to you and He works miracles among you. These are the present reality in your life from the day that I was there when I preached the gospel to you and you believed in Jesus. Why now are you being spellbound by these individuals? And trying to attain something that you can't even attain. You see, in this text, Paul emphasizes that salvation came from the work of the Spirit. Not through their human effort or for the flesh. Salvation is, in fact, a work of the Spirit from beginning to end. For example, in John chapter 3, you may recall that Jesus said to a man named Nicodemus, You must be born of the Spirit. You must be born of the Spirit. In John chapter 16, verse 8, Jesus said that when the Holy Spirit comes, He will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, the work of the Spirit. In Romans chapter 8, verse 9, when Paul talked about the work of the Spirit in the life of the believer, he specifically said that the moment a person believes in Jesus, they receive the Spirit, and the Spirit lives in them dwells in them permanently the moment you became a follower of Jesus Christ. You received the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God took up occupancy, residency in your life and Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.30 that we are sealed with the Spirit until the day of redemption. The Spirit of God is in us and He's with us. Why would you want to try to do all this 
by the works of the law or by the works of the flesh. And in Galatians chapter 5, as Paul brings his book to a close, which you'll get there eventually in this summer series, Paul reminds the Galatians that even once we believe, but it's after we believe, it is after we believe, that the Spirit produces fruit in us. You know, when you look at Galatians chapter 5, it's so easy to do this. I've done this so many times. I make so many mistakes on things sometimes. And I, I think to myself... Uh, self, uh, you, you know, you're really so impatient. You're such an impatient driver. I mean, I'm the worst. Uh, I, I just don't do a very good job of being patient. I got a heavy foot, and I just, anyway, uh, this is my confession to you. Uh, and I have a lot of other weaknesses, too, by the way. Um, and so what do I do? I, I say, well, okay, Lord, I know that I need to be more patient. Okay, that's, that's good. Acknowledge that you need to be more patient. Um, and um, so now... Uh, okay, you know what? I'm going to journal this down, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a real concerted effort this week to be patient. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to really work at it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to be patient. Yeah. How many of you have done that, right? Who doesn't do that? It's so easy to do that. It could be all about anything. Patience, whatever you have. Well, in a, in a sense, it's a little bit wrong-headed, if I can put it that way. It's a little bit wrong-headed. You see, and, and I know it's wrong-headed because... It's actually easier to try to do that than actually the thing that's actually the better thing and is actually the thing that we should do. You see, I'm not going to be able to willpower myself now that I've come to know Jesus and the Spirit of God lives in me. I'm not going to be able to willpower myself. I might get some, some advantage on that or I might get you know some progress on that by willpowering myself into more patience. The truth of the matter is Galatians 5, what does it say? Right? We, we go to a text like that love is patient. Or not, that's 1 Corinthians 13, sorry. Um, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, so Lord, I, I got a big list here and i kind of not doing great at a lot of these things, so I'm going to willpower myself through it. Did you read the text or did not? Like, did you not read the text? Corey, like, read the text. The fruit of the Spirit Oh, oh, I thought it said the fruit of Corey. Like the fruit of like, you know, willpowering myself through it. Like I, I thought if I just kind of work harder at being more patient. You see, the thing is this. The Spirit of God comes to dwell in you when you become a Christian. And then how does the Spirit manifest the fruit in you? You see, the works or the production of fruit comes after you come to know Jesus, after the Spirit has then come into your life, who, when he comes in the moment that you become a Christian, and now it is the Spirit of God that manifests the fruit. So now if I don't have the fruit, my question should be this, why am I not manifesting the fruit? Is it because I'm not trying hard enough? Most likely it's this in my life, in my experience. You're not leaning into the Lord, Corey. What does that mean? Well, tell me about the amount of time you spend with the Lord and just like getting yourself in a place where he can work on your inside, where he can do those things. You see, it's a spirit dependence. It's a spirit yielding, isn't it? It's, it's basically not working or earning, but it's saying, Lord, I can't do this. I need you to do this in and through me. I ask you to do this. But the deeper we go with our Lord, the closer we walk with him, the more we get to know our Savior, the more that fruit will begin to be manifested. You see, but that's about relationship, isn't it? And that's a lot harder to do than it is to try to just willpower yourself through. 
So Paul is reminding the Galatians here. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ is absolutely central and it's sufficient for your salvation. It's Jesus' death on the cross alone. And then he reminds them of their experience. Hey, listen, you came to know Jesus. I was there. You heard the gospel preached to you. You received the Spirit of God. God's Spirit is present and working among you. Why would you try to earn it? Galatians 5, the Spirit of God is there. He wants to produce and manifest fruit in your life. The fruit doesn't get you to heaven. The fruit is the result of you coming to know Jesus, right? And then there's one last thing Paul wants them to know in this passage. Thirdly, to break the spell that has been cast on them by the false teachers, Paul wants them to remember the Old Testament teaching that salvation has always been by faith alone. It's really easy sometimes to think that, well, the Old Testament is about the law and God wanted people to be saved in the Old Testament by, by, by works. That's not correct, actually. That's not God's plan wasn't to save people by works. He didn't have a plan of salvation. It was by works in the Old Testament and by, by salvation, by grace and faith in the New Testament. Paul's argument is, actually, if you go back to the Old Testament, if you go back, way back, way, way back to the first book, to Genesis, what you discover in that text is that salvation is by faith alone. And that message is exactly the same message that Paul was preaching. So Paul wanted the Galatian Christians to know that the message he was preaching wasn't just some stuff that he made up but it was actually rooted and anchored in Scripture and the Word of God, the authoritative teaching of the Word of God. Here's how Paul puts it in verses 6 through 9. He takes us back to Abraham. He says, Just as Abraham believed God and it was, it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, now why does Paul here take us back, or take the Galatians back, to Abraham? He takes us back to Abraham because... Well, it's important for us to remember that the the group called the Judaizers, the false teachers that had crept into that church, they were Jews who believed that it was not only important to believe in Jesus as the promised Messiah, but also to keep the works of the law. In particular, circumcision. In the Old Testament, where did God introduce circumcision? It was in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 17, God told Abraham that they needed to be circumcised. And from that point on, the Jews were circumcised. From a Jewish perspective, circumcision was kind of the, the, the entry right. If you were circumcised, you were, you were one of the sons of Abraham. You were part of the, the true people of God. So the Judaizers are using this and they're saying, listen, you believe in Jesus, but you've got to be circumcised. Note carefully Paul's argument in this passage. He's saying, listen, long before the law was ever put into place, the law is actually put into place, the Old Testament law, in Exodus chapter 20, starting there. But long before that, early in in the book of Genesis, we meet this guy named Abraham, and God calls him in Genesis chapter 12, and he gives him several promises. We call them a covenant, the covenant that God made with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. And then 
in chapter 15, Abraham has an encounter with God and we're told in chapter 15, verse 5 and 6, that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to or counted to as righteousness. And then two chapters later, which in our mind, two chapters is like two minutes. But, but in, in Abraham's day, there's, there's a time span between. You get to 17 and then God says, by the way, you've got to be circumcised. But you see, circumcision happens after Abraham believes God and it's counted as righteousness. What Paul's doing is he's taking us as readers back to the original plan, the very beginning. He's taking us back to Abraham. And he's countering the religious, um, sort of the, the Judaizers, who are saying a true son of Abraham must be circumcised. And he's saying, hold on a second. Sort of shut the front door, back up the truck, because that's actually not correct. All the way back before circumcision was ever put in place, look at Abraham. Abraham in Genesis 15 believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. His belief in God made him righteous. God gave him his righteousness. And then, as an outworking of that, chapter 17, he was circumcised. But don't put circumcision joined together with his belief in order for you to be saved, just like you wouldn't put baptism together to be saved either. You see, it's faith in Jesus Christ alone. And to further anchor this, the Apostle Paul says in verses 8 and 9, he takes the readers all the way back to Genesis 12, and there he says in this passage, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify, that is to declare righteous, the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you, in you, Abraham, all the nations shall be blessed. So not just Jews, but all the nations. The word nations here is all the, the ethne, all, all of the, the Gentiles, that is the non-Jews. In Abraham, all will be blessed. God declared a long time ago, before he ever gave the law, before he ever gave circumcision, he said, Abraham, from you there will be a seed, there will be a descendant, and, and all the nations will end up being blessed as a result of that. And Paul's conclusion then in verse 9 is, so then, in light of that, in other words, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So in this text, Paul points out that long before that law was ever given, God revealed to Abraham the truth of the gospel that salvation is by faith alone. And so Paul in this passage, as we have seen, is so desirous that the people that he reached with the gospel in the cities around Galatia that they would no longer be spellbound, but the spell would be broken as they remember the sufficiency of the cross of Christ. They remember the experience of salvation that they had through the working of God's Spirit, and as they remember that God's Word anchored in the Old Testament, the first book of the Bible taught that salvation has always been simply by faith in Christ alone 
as a way for us to be justified before God. And as followers of Jesus, we too need to remember that his cross is enough for all of our sin. We need to remember how he saved us by faith and through the work of the Spirit of God in our lives, he brought us to himself. And we need to remember that the Word of God declares that God's plan of salvation is and always has been by faith alone. I want to leave with you a couple of just reflections, maybe applications coming out of this text as well. And that is, the first of all, to go back to the fact that this group of believers were spellbound. Why were they spellbound? Why, why were they bewitched? Why did they so quickly desert the grace of Christ for a different gospel? And we have to be sort of gentle with them a little bit because, you know, we're alongside, a long way past that point in history and, you know, we have so much more than they have. They didn't actually have this, right? They didn't have their own personal Bible to lug around. Um, and so we have to be gracious with them, but we also have to ask, well, what, why, why did they get bewitched? What, why do people get bewitched today? For the most part, when people get bewitched by false teaching, false documents, because they're not anchored, right? they're not rooted, they're, they're, they're not um, spending time with the Lord in a relationship, cultivating that relationship, and they're not really studying the Word of God. Um, there, there certainly is a place in our lives for the daily bread, or as I used to mockingly refer to it as the daily crumb. Um, and it can be really good. Um, but boy, we need to study the Word. We need to study the Word. We need to know the Word. Um, to, to, to open up the book every day and to, to make an effort to really get to know the Word of God. Because it's the Word of God that will anchor you and ground you and keep you from being bewitched from being put under a spell. You need to read good books. Um, boy, I'm amazed today how few people seem to read good books. It's actually a little disheartening, frankly, if I'm honest with you, of um, just the desire to read the Word of God and to read good books that actually give you support and evidence and strength in your faith. And, but to read good books, if you want to be protected... Um, you know, it's important to do that on your own as well as come to a church. It's really important. The second thing to really guard against is we've got to resist legalism in our lives. And when I say legalism, I don't mean it the way I think a lot of times people use it. I think legalism here in this passage is the idea that, you know, when you add anything to Jesus, to the cross, that's legalism. You're, you're introducing the law or something else as a means for salvation. But here's the thing for us as believers. Sometimes we fall into this without actually, I think, maybe clearly calling it what it is, right? Sometimes our, our spiritual life becomes a list of have-tos and we start to think about earning, earning, right? Well, I read my Bible because I have to earn. I, I pray because I have to earn. I give to God because I have to earn. And God doesn't want you to do any of those things to earn. We, we don't do, we don't serve him, we don't worship him, we don't go to community groups, we don't read our Bibles, we don't pray. We don't do, we shouldn't do any of that ever to earn we do that because we love him, right? We do that because we love him. We do that because the sufficiency of the cross of Christ has so touched our lives. Our sins are forgiven. The spirit of God has come into our lives. 
and the outflow and the work of the Spirit is, Lord, I just want to love you. I want to love you. So help me not to ever fall into the pit, the danger of all of a sudden earning instead of doing it out of a heart that just wants to love you. The Apostle Paul, he makes it clear in this book that we're not saved by works. You won't get to heaven that way. He makes it clear that you and I will never be saved or get to heaven by faith plus works. He makes it crystal clear that you and I are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. But he also makes crystal clear, just like Martin Luther did years ago, that a faith that saves is also never alone. You're saved by faith alone, but a faith that saves is never alone, meaning true saving faith will manifest itself in a life of surrender and obedience to Jesus as imperfectly as we offer ourselves to him in that regard. Would you pray with me? Lord, I give you thanks for your word. I thank you, Lord, for your love for us. Thank you, Lord, that you do not treat us like we deserve. And Lord, as we gather even here in a moment around communion, I just thank you for the vivid reminder this morning in communion of the cross of Christ, of his death for us. Lord, we are here today and we just say, Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for saving us, that salvation is by faith alone, grace alone, in Christ alone. And Lord, thank you that even when we completely fall short of how you want us to be, you love us because we can never earn it and merit it. So Lord, would you please walk with us today and give us the strength of your spirit to live for you and protect us from being spellbound. In Jesus' name, amen.